The information expressed in the following podcast is intended for educational purposes only and was created by and belongs solely to Believe Limited and the Flow podcast and does not necessarily reflect the views of our sponsors. Please speak to your healthcare provider before making any medical decisions. Hi, I'm Jessica Richmond, and it is time to talk about extreme periods. Welcome to Flow. I'm here with the great Christy Van Horn, and we want to know, how's your flow? Welcome once again to Flow. Christy, so how is your flow? Honestly, I just finished and it was my lightest flow and shortest period I've had in a really long time. Wait, how short is short for you? I always feel bad. (laughs) It was probably like three or four days. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was honestly nice. We're going to talk about hormones today, and everybody knows I'm on my journey of going off the pill. But yeah, I had a very light period for the first time in a while, and it was nice. How's your flow? Um, Thank you so much for asking. I am feeling hormonal, but I mean that in a good way. I'm having the good hormones that are um, making me feel really calm. That happens right after I start bleeding. So I'm menstruating, but like right after I start bleeding, I actually feel great because of the hormones. It's right before that things are a little sometimes frisky. Frisky. (laughs) I like that. I have been feeling tired before my period. I don't know if that's normal. We should have asked Dr. Holmes. I mean, she was with us for episode one, What is Normal? What is Normal Anyway? And I'm so glad she's back today. Before we get into it, though, I do want to mention a few housekeeping things. Um, First of all, wanted to ask again, you listeners, if you're listening right now, we would love to hear what you think of Flow. Please leave us a review. Let us know your favorite parts. Um, let us know what you want to hear more of. But Christy, you do great work on your Instagram. And I think I saw that your course is relaunching. Is that true? It is. So yeah, my History of Health Disparities course is relaunching. And I have two incredible guest speakers. You know, I really dissect a lot of things that we talk about on flow in the course, like the history of hysteria, the history of uh, gender gaps in research. And I have two special guests, as I mentioned, one is doing a video collage on Juneteenth, which is it makes me cry. Um, it's just so powerful. And then we're doing a special on uh, health disparities and public health research. So how to engage your community. So lots of great stuff to learn. And the link will be in our show notes. It's only open until June 23rd. So check it out. Juneteenth is coming up. It's so important to learn about what that represents. If you don't know and you're hearing it for the first time, Google it and then take Christy's course. You're going to get some info about it. Here on Flow, we're so excited today. For those of you listening who have been with us since the top of the year, you know our first episode featured Girlology's Dr. Holmes, an incredible woman, doctor, educator, advocate, wise human. Christy, stop me. Just kidding. Don't. She's all these things and more. You introduced me to Dr. Holmes, and you brought her on for episode one. Could you tell us why she's also the perfect person to talk to us about hormones? As you've mentioned, she's an incredible doctor, an incredible educator. She just has this way of breaking down complex information so that we can all understand it, and she's so approachable. So excited to have her back, and just to mention in 
She is also the co-founder of Girlology. So if you have a teen or tween in your home, check out girlology.com. There's endless amounts of information. Yeah, it'll be in the notes. Uh, But yeah, we're just so lucky to have her back on Flow. Absolutely. And this episode, we are here in June and we are talking about what do hormones do? What do hormones do in our body? And we're going to get into it with Dr. Holmes right after this quick break. This ad is brought to you by Von Vendi, Von Willebrand Factor Recombinant. Hi, my name is Nicole. I didn't always feel empowered to speak up for myself or ask for the care and support I needed. Becoming part of a community and hearing other people's experiences helped to change my perspective. That's why my deciding factor is making my voice heard. To hear my story and access other helpful resources, drop by Von Vendi, that's V-O-N-V-E-N-D-I dot com slash patient dash stories. We are so excited here on Flow that for episode six, What Are Hormones? We're back with Dr. Holmes from Girlology. Hi, Dr. Holmes. Hello. Glad to be here. Amazing. We are so excited to have you back. <laughs> Thanks. This is such a fun group to talk with and such, you know, my favorite topics, obviously. <laughs> yes, favorite <laughs> topics. Great. Well, we're going to dive right in. We want to start with laying some framework, as if I've never heard of this word before. Can you tell me what hormones are? I guess, clinically speaking, what do hormones do in the human body? Yeah. So I'll explain it the way we explain it to kids when we're talking to them about puberty. Hormones are chemical messengers and they are secreted. A lot come from our brain or they come from other hormonal tissues. They travel through our bloodstream and they have specific targets in our body, either tissues or organs. Um, and they're these communicators. So they kind of tell these other places like what they need to do. So we have hormones that do all kinds of things. They tell us when we need to be hungry, when we need to sleep, when we need to, when we grow. Um, and then obviously we have our sex hormones that control our menstrual cycle and reproduction. Yes. Yes. I know we want to hear more about those. It's just cool to think about them as messengers. So they're sort of connected to the rest of the system of the human body, involved in nervous system, blood communication, all of it. Yep. Yep. So let's talk about how hormones impact menstruation then. What role do they play? I mean, hormones are the whole deal, right? They're like a big, important part of it all. So, and when you think about menstruation, I mean, we menstruate because we're not pregnant, but hormones are trying to get us pregnant. And when we aren't pregnant, then we menstruate, but hormones control all of it. And so just starting from kind of the beginning with the main hormones that are involved, we have um, FSH which stands for follicle stimulating hormone that comes from the pituitary gland, which is in our brain. And so that stimulates our follicles and our ovaries. And so follicles are these little fluid filled sacs where our eggs live. And here's a little fun fact, like we're born with all the eggs we'll ever have in our lifetime. That's kind of cool. And that'll come up later. But anyway, FSH stimulates those follicles to grow and they're trying to grow an egg. And then as that follicle grows, the follicle secretes estrogen. So that's where our estrogen comes from. The little eggs growing in sacs put out the estrogen. And then when that estrogen gets 
high enough, when our, when our brain detects a lot of estrogen, it shuts off the FSH. And then that tells the pituitary, you know, I don't need any more follicle stimulation because I've got a follicle. So then the brain switches and it says, okay, I'm going to send out LH, which is called luteinizing hormone. It stands for luteinizing hormone. And that is what surges in the middle of the cycle and causes ovulation. So we get this peak of LH and then we ovulate about 24 or 48 hours later. And so after we ovulate, that's when the egg comes out of the follicle and goes into the fallopian tube and is hoping to get fertilized. That leftover follicle secretes the hormone progesterone. And so that's where our progesterone comes from. And progesterone, as it sounds, is progestation. So it is to support pregnancy, right? So progesterone prepares the endometrium for pregnancy. And if somebody were to conceive, it will support the pregnancy until the placenta is formed enough to start secreting those hormones and it would take over. So we get hormones from the placenta too, if there's pregnancy, if there's no pregnancy, those progesterone levels kind of stay up. And then that little cyst that was secreting the, the progesterone shrills up and the progesterone levels fall rapidly. And when they fall, that signals the endometrium that there's no pregnancy. And so it's like, okay. And it sheds the lining. And that's when we get our period. So that was a long explanation, but it's really FSH to estrogen, LH to progesterone, progesterone falls, and we have a period. Confina, can I ask one follow-up question? So it sounds like the two that have initials, FSH and LH. The first word of it, though, is follicle and luteal. Those are the names of the phases of menstruation. Is that right? Very observant. Yes. Leave it to Jay Rich. Student Leave here. <laughs> Student here to learn. But okay, <laughs> interesting. Because I've, I've only ever heard of progesterone, progesterone and estrogen. Those two right. are secretly... The two other hormones. But there are there. hormones that cause them to be secreted. So we wouldn't have estrogen progesterone if we didn't have hormones signaling the ovaries to produce them. Great. Love a gold star. Um, I think I'm going to jump to a question we were going to ask you a little bit later because it just feels like a good follow-up. Are there ways to manage like extreme menstruation and, and hormonal flares? And I'm, I guess we're, you know, we had two episodes, I think it was episode four, we talked about PMDD. Could you talk a little bit about, remind us what PMDD stands for and talk to us a little bit about how hormones impact that particular condition and maybe others? PMDD is a more severe form of PMS, which I'm sure you've talked about on your other podcast, but PMDD is a, is a, is where your PMS symptoms, particularly those mood symptoms become debilitating and they interfere with your life or your relationships. And they can really be like I said, debilitating for some people. And we have to, in order to treat them, we can treat them in a couple of different ways. We can suppress those hormones and it's progesterone that is really involved the most. Um, so we can suppress that through the use of hormonal treatment, which is most easiest, it, most easily done. There we go with birth control right? Um, or if somebody does not want to use a hormonal treatment, there are some other treatments we can use antidepressants either cyclically or continuously, but that doesn't control the hormones that just treats those symptoms. So when we have patients with severe PMDD or any severe medical condition tied to their menstrual cycle, we can suppress the menstrual cycle. 
so that they don't have the hormones that are influencing that condition. If you don't ovulate and have progesterone, by definition, you cannot have PMDD. So it has to, you have to be ovulating to have PMS or PMDD. When you suppress ovulation, which is what birth control does, or you suppress the LH surge, so ovulation doesn't happen, you won't have PMDD or PMS. And just a follow up, if you suppress ovulation for many years, then all those eggs you're born with never get released. They're hanging out in the ovaries. They're hanging out, but they still, um, they age, right? Just like everything else in our body, they age. And so they're still, they're not, the quality doesn't persist. You may not use up as many follicles, but we still lose our ovarian function over time in the same way. That's a great question though, because it, it seems logical that if you're not popping out all those eggs, aren't you going to be fertile longer? Um, and that's not necessarily the case. Gotcha. So let's back up. I jumped the gun here, <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about the, you know, our kind of hormones through our life course. And we know that through your work with Girlology, you do a lot of work with teens and adolescents. So let's start there. Teenagers have a reputation for being hormonal, right? I mean, <laughs> we've all heard it. So can you, yeah, let's start there. Let's talk a little bit about the hormones during those teen years. Yeah. So first I just have to, I have to give teens a shout out and say they're not just hormonal. They have a lot happening with their brain and their neurotransmitters and growth in their brain and developmental changes that make them the emotionally labile people that they are. It's not all hormones. Um, and so I have one of my pet peeves is when all of our emotions get blamed on our hormones, just like PMS, like, oh, you must be PMSing. And that drives me crazy. But they are, they do have a lot of hormones. And it's really, you know, their growth and their periods that those hormones are addressing. So when it comes to teens, you know, when you think about at puberty, the ovaries kind of wake up. And they, they start releasing some estrogen. There's a little bit of follicle stimulation happening. There's estrogen, breasts start to develop, vaginal discharge starts to happen, all of that. But it takes a few years before the ovaries regularly ovulate for teenagers. So they have a little more estrogen around than progesterone. They are less likely to have PMS, PMDD, uh, cramps because they're not ovulating as regularly, but about three to five years into their, their period. So three to five years after menarche, which is the first period, most teens are starting to have more regular cycles. Their estrogen and, and uh, progesterone become more cyclic because they're starting to ovulate more regularly. It's just that the, the brain to the ovaries, those signals take a little time to mature. So for teens, that's why they're irregular initially. So it's kind of common for them to have irregular periods. Sometimes if they're going a while without a period, their next one may be heavy. That explains a lot of it. So that's kind of the initial phase into the reproductive years. But then as they move into like about five to seven years after menarche, so moving into their, to the early 20s, late teens, early 20s, those cycles become 
way more regular. It's when we're the most fertile. It's when we're the most cyclic with any symptoms that we have. Um, and our cycles become more regulated. So for teens, the average menstrual cycle is about 32 days cycle length. But once we move into our 20s, it becomes about 28 to 29 days with kind of a normal range of 31 to 35 days. And, you know, that's when you learn about looking at your cervical mucus, um, because your estrogen peaks at ovulation and it's very predictable. It's when you think about PMS symptoms being very consistent and you can kind of plan your month around your cycle if you need to, because that's when we're the most regular. It's when we're the most fertile. So that's 20s to early 30s. And then it doesn't take long before we get into our 30s and into our, by the time we reach our late 30s, we're not producing as much progesterone from those follicles. And the number and the quantity, quality of those follicles starts to decrease. Um, and that, you know, makes our estrogen levels decline and uh, we start producing a little less estrogen. And that's when we're in what's called the perimenopause. So perimenopause can last, you know, on average, it's about four years for people, but it can last up to 10 to 12 years. It also can just be a few months for some people. So it's a huge wide range, but on average, it's about four years. So perimenopause is characterized by lower levels of estrogen, lower levels of progesterone and our cycles start to become a little more irregular. As we approach menopause, our cycles tend to get a little closer together initially, and then they start to space farther apart over time until eventually we start skipping occasional cycles and then it stops. I'm 42. I'm almost 42. So what does that like, what can I expect? I, I am not the only person we, as I mentioned uh, before the, before we started recording, I have a friend with the same question. We're the same age. We're in our early forties. So what do we have to expect over the next, like, say 10 years? Or is there no blueprint for this? There's no blueprint. Everybody is different. Everybody I want a blueprint, is- Melissa. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> But what I can tell you is if you experience symptoms, it is not unusual to have a little more irregularity in your cycle, possibly heavier periods, because the other thing that's happening is as we age, we're also more likely to have fibroids. We're less likely to be ovulating regularly. All those things can make us bleed more, have heavier periods. Um, It is not unusual to start to experience vaginal dryness. It is not unusual to start to have some sleep disturbances. Estrogen uh, is a big sleep regulator, as is progesterone. And so when our levels start to decline, it can definitely affect our sleep. So that's kind of what we have to look forward to, right? So then menopause comes. So can you talk to us a little bit about our hormones during that phase of our lives? Yeah, so menopause, by definition, is when you've been one year without a period. So there's no way to know like the moment of menopause. It's kind of a diagnosis made in retrospect. So if you've been a year without a period, you are, you have reached menopause and you, at that moment you are postmenopausal. So it's a little confusing, the terminology you can say, I mean, you hear people say I'm perimenopausal, I'm menopausal, I'm postmenopausal. They all kind of overlap a lot. Um, But as we reach menopause, you know, we don't have any estrogen. 
it's being produced on a regular basis. Now we do store estrogen and fat cells in our body. So we have a little bit, but we really don't have the amounts that we're used to and that our body and brain are used to bathing in. Um, and so we definitely start to have symptoms if we're not replacing that estrogen. And so those symptoms are, again, there is no blueprint. It is different for everybody, but most commonly it's hot flashes, which is the most common menopausal symptom that people report vaginal dryness, mood changes, sleep deprivation, skin changes. And then, you know, from a less symptomatic thing, we start to lose bone density, uh, we start to see an increase in heart disease. So there are other things that happen after menopause because we lose estrogen. So much to look forward to. <laughs> you know what? There's just also, there's also a beautiful freedom in menopause. Speaking as a menopausal woman, I mean, there's a freedom that you've never appreciated before. You don't have to worry about birth control. You don't have to worry about periods. And it's also like this you're like, yeah, you know what? I've been there. I There's this new wisdom. There are so many cultures where menopausal women are seen as wise women and, you know, gain this, this respect. And unfortunately in the U S we have a big problem with ageism and we don't see the same thing happening, but, you know, I'm trying to reclaim that. <laughs> I love <trying>. that. <laughs> And I have to say, like, I, I made that comment, but I'm not one that's fearful of aging. I am embracing it 42 almost years young. I'm not, I'm, I'll be honest, it might sound ridiculous, but I'm not looking forward to the hot flashes. My first time I had a hot flash, I wasn't really sure what was happening. And I'm a gynecologist. I mean, I've been talking to people about hot flashes forever. I was sitting in clinic seeing patients and I remember going, I don't feel well, like what, what is wrong with me? And after about two or three minutes, it passed. And I was like, I think I just had a flash. <laughs> <laughs> it was just one of those things. And I, my sister-in-law, same thing. She called me one day. She's like, oh my God, I don't know what happened to me. I had a hot flash at work. I mean, I had a panic attack at work and I got all red and sweaty and I didn't know what was going on. I was a little bit dizzy. And I was like, I think you had a hot flash. So it's really interesting that as prepared as we think we are, it's just a symptom that you've, it's something you've never felt before. It's just very unusual. And then you like, then you're like, oh yeah, I know what it is. Give me a fan, right? <laughs> so cliche. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. I have to say, cause I, I operate in certain, I'll call them woo woo circles. If you've ever heard of human design, hit me up on Instagram at Jessica Lauren Richmond. Let's talk about it. But in those circles, it's absolutely menopause is seen as a graduation into like wisdom mm -hmm. phase. I love of womanhood. that. Very cool. I love that. Love that. Yeah. And to honor like the hormonal experience is part of those kind of community conversations that I'm in as well. To truly honor where the hormones are helping us experience life. Which brings up the question, how does birth control impact those hormonal levels? What are we doing to our natural occurring hormones with birth control for a goal or not? Just, you know, whether or not someone's dealing with a disorder, what do those hormones do? You know, birth control gets a bad rap in especially some of these circles that tend to be more naturalist, right? But from a health perspective, from an evidence perspective, 
they're not doing any damage. And if, if anything, they actually may be improving health in some parameters, right? So we know that birth control can help prevent certain cancers, endometrial cancer, ovarian cancer, colon cancer. It reduces all of those. Um, the risk of breast cancer is slightly elevated, but disappears after you've been off of it for five years or more. Um, so I don't think people need to fear birth control, but what I do want folks to realize is that it can be life-changing for people who are having horrible symptoms related to their period or people who are suffering with the symptoms of menopause and it's interfering with their life. Um, so birth control, you know, basically is estrogen and progesterone. It is ethanol estradiol. So it is a synthetic estrogen and there is a progesterone that is also synthetic, but they're very similar to the hormones in our body and they're made to mimic pregnancy, but at a lower dose than what than the hormones pregnancy gives us, right? So when birth control was, was invented, it was intended to just be progesterone, which would mimic pregnancy, right? And then they realized that the first birth control pills they made were contaminated with estrogen. So they, they went back to the lab, took out the estrogen, and then started the clinical trials again with just the progesterone. And women just kept having spotting and they hated it. And so they put the estrogen back in, which helps prevent, which helps maintain the cycle, the better cycle control and prevent the spotting. So basically birth control, if you're thinking of hormonal birth control, like birth control pills or the patch or the vaginal ring, all of those contain estrogen and progesterone, and they keep your cycle very regular, or we use them to even stop the cycle, which is perfectly safe the way it's done. There are other birth control methods that just use progesterone. So there's the hormonal IUD, the implant, the shot, the mini pill, emergency contraception. Those all just have progesterone. And one of the biggest side effects of those is breakthrough bleeding or irregular spotting um, because they don't have the estrogen that controls that bleeding better. So it's not doing anything to damage the body. It's basically giving you estrogen, which like I said, controls the bleeding progesterone, which thins out the endometrium. Um, I always tell my medical students that estrogen is like fertilizer and progesterone is like the lawnmower. And so when you give somebody estrogen, it makes the endometrium grow and get thick. And when you give them progesterone, it's like it thins it out. And so we have to find that balance of keeping it healthy, but keeping it thin so it doesn't bleed a lot. And that's the same theory we use with menopausal hormone therapy, a balance of estrogen and progesterone in people who still have a uterus. Gotcha. And is that common, menopausal hormonal ther um, therapy? Very common. It used to be a lot more common until this study came out in the early 1990s, the Women's Health Initiative, which scared everybody away from hormonal therapy. It was a, it was not a very well-designed study because they enrolled women in their 60s in starting hormones for the first time. And we have, we know now that that's a really bad idea, but if people are going to use hormones for menopausal symptoms, if you start them at the time of menopause, it actually does a lot of good for them. But if you start it too late, that time when they're without estrogen and progesterone, they have an increase in um, cardiovascular complications, you know, their cholesterol isn't as well maintained. And so heart attacks, heart disease became a big problem starting it late. When you add estrogen to someone who already has developed some degree of heart disease, that creates problems. 
Right. And it's, it's a complicated topic, but we know now that starting it at the time of menopause or within about five years of menopause doesn't carry that same risk. And in fact, carries some significant benefits, but it has to be individualized. You know, somebody needs to want it. They need to trust it. They need to have symptoms. We don't just give it to everybody just because their ovaries have stopped making estrogen. We give it to them to treat specific symptoms. And so it's an individualized conversation that everybody should have with their own provider. Melissa, my question is, I think doctors, health educators have been saying for a long time that everybody is different, right? Are, we all react to medications differently, and we're all different. And I think the COVID vaccine has actually acted as a really great example of this, how some people have no symptoms after they get their vaccine and how others do. And it's just a great reminder that we are all different. We all have different bodies. And it's so important that you talk to your doctor about your own individualized care. So I just wanted to piggyback off of what you said, because I think it's a really important message and we often forget that. Uh, so thank you. I think that's a really important point. And I love your analogy. I mean, that it really makes sense. We also, though, have some amazing listener questions um, that we'd love to bring our fearless creative director, Amy Board, in the house, in the Zoom room, on the line. Dr. Holmes, hello. And yes, we do have um, a question that was uh, written into us. This listener said that she was diagnosed with factor five at age 37 after an extensive blood clot and PEs, which are pulmonary embolisms. She's been on birth control for endometriosis since she was 16. It turns out she should have never been on birth control. Um, given there are certain types of women who shouldn't be prescribed hormones, why don't they do genetic testing for all women prior to recommending birth control? It really comes down to a public health question. Is it cost effective to do testing on everybody? And it's not. So uh, if we have any concern, we do screen everybody. We're starting on birth control. Do they have a family history of clotting disorders? I mean, that's a standard question. Um, and if they do, we need to get to the bottom of it. Like sometimes, especially if we have, a, I take care of a lot of teenagers and they're always like, yeah, yeah, my mom had a blood clot. And we do have to find out what her diagnosis was. And we specifically will ask for testing results. Um, if that's not available, it's still rare enough to where it's safe to, to try it in young people because their risk for clot is so incredibly low. It's just a really rare complication. Uh, you know, and factor five is one of those, again, if they're homozygous or heterozygous, it makes a big difference as well. Neither should be on birth control that contains estrogen, but it is safe for them to be on birth control that is progesterone only. So, I mean, estrogen is really the only problem in that case. Interesting. She also mentioned, obviously, she's been taken off birth control. Um, her hematologist doesn't even want her on a mini pill. Um, she does have severe endo. Um, and so she's been using birth control to treat it since she was 16. And now being off the pill, she bleeds randomly and she has a lot of period pain. And she feels like, or, or either she's been told she has no good answers except to have a hysterectomy. Uh, she feels stuck. Um, every herbal treatment she looks up doesn't mix with blood thinners outside of acupuncture or surgery, and she doesn't really feel like she has a pain-free path forward. Um, she asks what you recommend for women like her. That's a big question. I was just going to say, I would have her see an endometriosis specialist because surgery is probably going to be her way out. And it, does, it may not need to be a hysterectomy, but I mean, her case is so rare. And, and, and 
I mean, there's so many details in that case that probably wouldn't apply to most of your listeners that I don't know. No, it's fair. And I mean, you know, we do, we really do push into the extreme cases of, you know, um, menstrual life. And so is that something that, you know, coming off of birth control, I've heard that before, when you come off of birth control, your cycle's more intense, there's more pain. Um, is that just hearsay or is that a thing? That's really just hearsay. When you look at people who have been on birth control, some of it depends on when they started it. And when they stopped it, because sometimes they start it when they're teenagers and everything's fine and they stop it and they've got fibroids or they, you know, have some other condition that is, or they've just aged and their periods are different. Um, sometimes we start birth control to treat a problem like cramps or heavy bleeding. And then as soon as you stop it, it returns and you just don't remember how bad it was before, but there's no evidence to say that stopping birth control shifts your cycle in any way. I have a personal question and I didn't tell our host that I was going to ask this one. So, so it might get cut. Psyched to know like what happens in the editing process. It's a personal question, but I was on birth control uh, for my goodness, over a decade um, started because of my acne and, you know, just hormone cycles and, and was on for over a decade and then stopped, was off of it for about three to four years and then got on an IUD. What I've noticed on the, I, and I'm, I'm 40, so I'm here in this, this age of, of uh, you know, potential changes. What I've noticed on the IUD, and this is so weird, it, it, it's just been, it's felt like an out-of-body experience because everything has been tight, everything's been dry, everything has just felt, it has felt very different hasn't felt crampy. It hasn't felt like my normal period symptoms. My bleeding has kind of, you know, gone away and spotting. That's not been a thing, but I've just noticed the tightness. What I've do you noticed, mean by tight? You like, mean your vagina feels tight or my vagina feels tight, but like around my cycle, I get hot sweats. I, it's like, I feel the hormones like sweating out through me. It just feels so different. And I'm just wondering if that's a thing. It's a thing because you are on a progesterone only birth control method if you're using an IUD or unless you're using a copper IUD. No, okay. no. I'm so you're on a hormonal IUD, which is just progesterone. So you're not getting any estrogen, um, which means if your levels are dropping a little bit, you may start to notice some of those symptoms. Yeah, that makes sense. Birth control pills will mask. Well, I, I say birth control pills, any pill with estrogen, any patch, any ring, any of the, the combined hormonal methods of birth control which have the estrogen and progesterone will mask any symptoms of menopause. And so, and it's safe to stay on them in a healthy individual who is a non-smoker. It is safe to stay on them through menopause up till menopause and people and gynecologists will typically stop the pill. And when you're 50 or 51, you can be off of it. You need to be off of it for, you know, a little while before they can do a blood test to see if you're truly menopausal. We check the FSH level, which is what we talked about at the beginning of the show. That's the only way to know for sure if you're menopausal or you can just wait and see. Interesting. But people are always curious, like, when can I go off birth control safely and not worry about pregnancy? Mm -hmm. And the average age of menopause is 51, but some people are 55, 56. Interesting. So thank you, Dr. Holmes. You're welcome. And thank you, host. So this is the tweet we found. Periods are really crazy when you consider your body expects you to get pregnant every month. Then it chooses violence when it doesn't. 
There, <laughs> there isn't even an off season, just monthly rage against the machine. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm all for period humor. I like to, <laughs> I like to think it's not that bad. <laughs> oh my goodness. And if it is that bad, if it really feels like a rage against the machine, a monthly assault, then by all means, talk to your provider, talk to your doctor, yes. <laughs> get some help because there are things we can do. <laughs> That's a perfect comment to that tweet. Um, but yeah, we got a little chuckle over that one here yeah, at Flow. Yeah. I think there's so much about our hormones that we just don't even know yet. I mean, we're starting to explore, and this is a little off topic, but we're starting to explore more about how the menstrual cycle affects training for athletes, right? And there's certain times in their phase when they should be do, work more on aerobics and there's certain time in their phase where they should do more power training. And so we're starting to learn so much more about how hormones interact with our bodies. And, you know, the issue is that we've never done this research. Women have never, nobody's ever cared enough about the menstrual cycle because women weren't doing the research. Women were excluded from studies because their periods complicated everything. So I think we finally have reached that threshold where there are enough women in science to where we're going, you know, what the heck is happening here? I mean, inflammatory bowel disease is affected by menstruation. Lupus is infected by menstruation. So many autoimmune conditions are affected by the menstrual cycle. So I, I think there's so much to learn and our hormones are probably the key to most of it. That's a great soundbite for this there's entire our, episode. I know. <laughs> <laughs> right, Thank you for... Answering oh, our personal question about syncing up periods. Do you want to? Are we? Oh, I did. That's yes. such a common question, right? Is it actually possible for women to sync up on menstruation? More specifically, to this current episode, is it, in theory, hormonally based that somehow we can like contagion each other's hormones? It sounds really fun. If that were true, <laughs> it would be delightful. <laughs> But there is not a bit of science that supports it. And the studies have been done. There have actually been legitimate studies looking at do our periods sync up with each other, looking at roommates, looking at family members. And unfortunately, the answer is no. Now, I am all about evidence-based, like, nope, that's not evidence-based. But when it comes to syncing, there's no harm in feeling that connection with your buddy. So I'm okay with it. If you want to think it does, go for it. But the science doesn't back it. I mean, we can believe whatever we want about our cycles, right? Um, but the, you know, the science doesn't back it up. It's kind of coincidental though. There is a lot of overlap. If you consider the fact that among menstruating people, they are having a period 25% of every month and nobody's cycle links are exactly the same. So they're going to overlap from time to time. We just happen to notice it more when we're all on our periods together. We look for it. So it's just statistics. It's not syncing up. It's just statistically likely. It's cool. statistics, not hormones. <laughs> Thank you for debunking that. Sorry. So <laughs> we need the hard-hitting facts from Dr. Holmes. <laughs> Dr. Holmes is a dream come true. It is so good to hear her crystallize the anatomy and the impact of our hormones. Yes. 
And I appreciate that she mentioned the information about going off the pill and that our periods aren't necessarily worse because we all know that I've been talking about that a little bit here and there, um, that we just don't remember what it used to be like. And I'm like, "Uh, that's me. That's me. (laughs) So I appreciated that information and so much else that she offered us during this episode. Also, you know, starting to think about menopause. Mm, mm. I just heard like. Celine Dion in my head being like, and it's all coming back to me now. With that, returning to the period after coming off hormone therapy, hormone replacement therapy, which is something that some women go on. You mentioned menopause is around the corner. Some women go on hormone replacement therapy during menopausal years. Yeah. Well, to wrap us up, I think it's time for our closing bits, starting with my favorite, Christy's tips. So my first tip for today is to track your cycle. And if you have a young person in your house, encourage them or help them to also track their cycle. There are so many benefits to this, you know, understanding your body, knowing if you're irregular so you can ask your doctor about it. You just feel empowered when you know uh, and have more information about your cycle. The other tip of the day is, you know, part of the reason you would track your cycles to know if something's off. Talk to your doctor. And before you go to your doctor, make a list. So talk to your doctor with questions that you have. Write down a list or put it in your phone. I know a lot of people that use notes um, in their phones to make questions for their doctors. If you have, again, a teen and you're even going to your pediatrician, ask them if they have questions that they want answered. Always you know, try to be as specific as possible and don't feel stupid. I always say, Trust me, there is nothing that these doctors have not heard. (laughs) They have heard it all. So be specific, ask about side effects, period pain, what's normal. Don't be afraid to ask questions. And then my last tip for today is share, share our podcast. Yes, that might seem like, okay, Christy and Jess, but no, really, like share this information. We've had incredible guests on here. And the more we share this information, the more, you know, we'll end the stigma and people will feel empowered to take control. I think your tips are great when they include the idea of sharing and propagating the Flow podcast. (laughs) I think it's great. A great tip. It's good advice, Christy. And uh, hey, listeners, if you're riding the hormonal shifts that accompany menstruation right now, we want to remind you that you're not crazy. Come here, baby. What do you think you are? You are not crazy. Crazy or something? Crazy! Ah! On this episode's You're Not Crazy, we're going to dive into the misinformation around hormone replacement therapy for menopausal women. Now, hormone replacement therapy, aka birth control, first became available in the 1960s, where menstruators flocked to usage to help manage menstruation, conception, and menopause. Now, usage evolved with studies that focused on the impact of hormone therapy. What combination of hormones and when should they be administered in order to ease the physical stress of menopause without side effects that cause more harm? Clinical trials were necessary. Updated hormone replacement therapy for menopausal women peaked again in the late 90s, early aughts. But then a study was done check the show notes for more info, that showed the negative impact of certain hormone replacement therapies for women experiencing menopause. Unfortunately, that study's design provided inconclusive results. I mean, participating subjects included women who were 10 years past menopause, for example. 
and yet the study was widely publicized. Thus, for the past 20 years, in spite of the known benefits, many menstruators have been dissuaded from incorporating hormone replacement therapy into their treatment. So hey, before believing any hype, remember to check your sources. Misinformation is rampant, and sorting through it all can really make a person feel nuts. It's true. I love this too, because it it goes back to talking to your doctor, right? Like the tips I just gave, write your questions down. Even if you've heard of this study, take it to your doctor and say, can we talk about this? I'm a little confused. What does this mean? Can you help me understand it? So yeah, love it. Great reminder. If you're doing your own research, include that in the conversation with your doctor. Cool. Yeah. So Christy, we're still a month away, but I want to close out this episode by telling listeners about our lives coming up. Uh, Our first one is next month for Fibroids Awareness Month. We'll do that on Instagram. Hop on a live and have a conversation. We'd love to hear from you on that live. So look for more information about that in late July. And our goal in September is to show up with a live experience patient panel and hopefully talk to you whoever's listening right now. Yes, and don't forget to get in touch with us. DM us questions, upcoming episodes, focus on the endometriosis experience, the history of period products and period poverty, which is so much more than just pink tax. All coming up, all right here on Flow. Till next month, remember to find us on Instagram and follow at Bloodstream Info for little tidbits from each episode. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share Flow. Referrals from you are the best way to reach new people. Share your story with us. Do you have an experience of extreme cyclical bleeding? We believe sharing these stories will support an increase in medical research and social acceptance. And thanks to our sponsor Takeda for their support of Flow. Flow was produced by Bloodstream Media and supported by Takeda. Shout out to creative director Amy Board and Flow's hosts, Jessica Richmond and Christy Van Horn. Flow was edited by me, Colby Crow. Our next available episode will be July 8th. Hey, that's the day after I start menstruating. <laughs>